Hi, it's Katrina Hibbert, Frog, head coach of the Flames. Make sure you tune in on Shooting the Breeze, Fridays, 4pm. Joining us today on Shooting the Breeze, we have Annie LaFleur, stalwart of Australian women's basketball. Annie, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on today. I'm very excited to be joining you. It's our pleasure. I'd like to start off talking about how you first got into basketball, and then we can talk about your career. Yes, no problem. So I started playing actually at the age of 14. I went to a high school in Sydney, St. Mary's Star of the Sea Hurstville, and I was playing netball at the time. My netball coach was putting a basketball team in and asked me if I wanted to play. So, you know, you you look at kids nowadays and, you know, they're all starting at like six and seven. Uh, I didn't have that opportunity. But, you know, at 14 years of age, started playing and that was kind of it for me. I thought, you know, this is an amazing game. It's uh, everyone can shoot the ball. You You don't have any restrictions of where you can actually run. Uh, it was a lot more physical and, uh, that, yeah, that was kind of it. It sold me. Amazing game, you know. Not playing now, but I did play for many, many years. You had quite a quite a distinguished career, right from Junior Women's World Championships right through to the Opals. When you first went overseas to represent Australia, I think that was in uh, Spain for the Australian... In Spain, yeah. yes, that's right. How was that? How did that feel? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background into how I actually made that team. I was um, playing for the Sydney Comets uh, in Alexandria um, and we were playing in the club championships uh, in Bankstown. So it was a whole, you know, a massive tournament, clubs from all over the country. And here's me running around and Ray Tomlinson, the coach, was there scouting, you know, watching the players that were already in the squad. They had to finalise the team a few weeks later before they travelled to Spain. So uh, Trevor Cook, the assistant coach, had watched me play and had gone over to Ray and was like, hey, you know, come and watch this player. You know, they'd never seen me before. Ray actually thought I was older uh, and wasn't able to play in the team. So, you know, played really well, got asked to come to the final um, camp before the team was selected got selected in the team and and that was my first trip, you know, playing for Australia. I was actually a restricted player. I was still, you know, uh, had a PNG uh, uh, citizen. So I had to, you know, become a citizen of Australia first to play for Australia, which back then wasn't such a a hard thing to do, Um, and then made the trip to to Spain. I can remember starting the first game um, and then not playing the rest of the tournament which was a bit of a challenge for me, uh, just kind of understanding, you know, the whys and the what I could do better. And although I didn't get, you know, didn't get to play that much, I think, you know, representing your country, going to to another country and, and, and you know, experiencing the culture, I mean, that was an amazing, amazing achievement and, you know, amazing experience for me at the age of, uh, I think I was 19 at the time. And particularly at the time because... International travel wasn't as widespread as it is now. So that would have been a pretty amazing experience for someone of your age at that time. Yeah, and I mean, also, you know, I wasn't a very outspoken, outgoing type of person too. So to to come into a team at the last minute and to try and fit into the culture and, um, you know, there was there were players there that I'd played against, you know, in Sydney. Uh, but, you know, when you have a, a group that's been together for a while and then you've got an outsider coming in and, and being somebody that wasn't as, you know, outgoing, that was a little bit of a challenge for me. But 
you know, something I think that's kind of helped me adjust to, to circumstances after that. And then you moved into the Flames, mm-hmm. um, played for the Flames for several years, also scored three WNBL championships. It's not often that you see a player <laughs> stay with one team for, for that that period of time how was it and how did it feel being with the team for that long and going through and the three championships in that process oh look I mean it's a, a an amazing time you know for basketball in Sydney and um, we had a very good team um you know 93 was the first championship that we won uh we had Carrie Graff who was an up-and-coming young coach uh we had I think four of the Opals uh in the team we had Robin Maher Trish Fallon, Karen Dalton, uh, Shelley Gorman. So a pretty gun team. And we had Michelle Landon, who was the point guard, uh, who was a fringe Opals player. She was in the squad, you know, for, for many years. So for me, being a part of that team, you know, coming off the bench, being able to, I, I think that was probably the best game that I'd played um, that season and being able to help the team, you know, win a championship. We had Tom Ma, the Opals coach, who was there for all our games. So that in itself, I think, helped me get my foot into the door for the Opal squad, you know, and then to go on to, you know, represent Australia in a couple of international events and to win two more championships with the Flames was a pretty big achievement. I'm a very loyal person, so I, I didn't move around a lot. I My family was in Sydney. I was a single mum. So, you know, having my support uh, around me to help me through that um, that time was, uh, you know, probably why I stayed for as long as I did in Sydney, to be honest. <laughs> and if I remember right, I remember being at that game. I think that first mm. one was like a, a one one or two points. Oh, the yes. That first uh, yeah, one? at the Entertainment Centre, yes. Yep. Yeah, we only won for it by a couple of points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty exciting because we played against Michelle Timms, who was the starting point guard for the Opals. Yes. Um, Rhonda Bates, the American import, um, she ended up coming over to play for the Flames. uh, And I was, you know, in the teams that won the championships with her uh, in the later years. But, I mean, they were a gun team um, as well. So it was nice to actually get that one um, over them and, and play, you know, and and I feel like I played well, um, so you know, I was able to help the team win the championship. It's kind of going back to the future a little bit now that the the Flames and the Kings are back under the same ownership banner. Do you think that's going to really help to boost the fortunes of the team in terms of fan engagement mm. being tied up with the Kings again? You know, it was a wonderful. Uh, night out, I think. You know, you, you look back in the 90s and we always played our games uh, before the Kings, even on the road. So, you know, by half time we had such a good crowd there and, and people were there to, to watch the women play as well. So, you know, at the entertainment centre in the city, people would come and, you know, they'd have dinner, they'd come over and watch the games and they'd go out for drinks afterwards. So It was a wonderful night. You got two games, you know, for the price of one. It was a real family um, atmosphere. You know, the court announcer was great. You know, there was just a lot of things for the spectators to see and be a part of. And it was a good culture. Uh, And hopefully, you know, by doing that again, you will have that culture uh, back and it will be an event and a night out for for families. Yeah, I I really hope so. I think it's one of those things that will help to develop uh, women's basketball and also help to raise the profile in Sydney. Yeah, most definitely. You got an opportunity to play overseas in the WNBA for two teams, the mm-hmm. the Minnesota Lynx and the Washington yeah. Mystics. 
How was that? Because you would have been one of the earlier players from Australia going over to play in the WNBA. Yeah, look, I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time because I, uh, Trish Fallon, uh, who was who I was playing with with the Flames, is going to be drafted by Minnesota. So, you know, the, back in those days, there were tapes of players and what they could do when the coach saw me, you know, playing with her. So her agent actually contacted me and said, look, you know, they're interested in you. You know, what are your thoughts? And uh, he ended up becoming my agent. So uh, I was picked up as a free agent by Minnesota, you know, went over and the experience was, yeah, I mean, look, it was, we had our ups and downs. We, um, Trish played the first half of the season and then sat the second and I sat the first and, and played the second. It was, you know, it was interesting, you know, with emotion going up and down about, you know, playing and not playing and what we needed to do to, to get on the court and uh, enjoy the experience. So, you know, although it didn't go as, as what we expected, um, I think that, you know, every every team you're in and every coach you have teaches you something. So what we learned from that experience, you know, helped us in our, uh, you know, teams that we were, you know, to be a part of in the future. What were your, your thoughts about the quality and the differences between the WNBA and the WNBL? Oh, I mean, look, the differences were, you know, we used a size six ball in the WNBA. We used a seven uh, in the WNBL. So adjusting to the equipment, what the rules, you know, were slightly different. So, you know, it was adjustment there. So, for example, in the WNBA, a player can call a timeout on the court. You know, FIBA rules, uh, only the coach can call a timeout, you know, at the bench. So, I mean, there were some differences like that. As far as the actual game, you know, we have a lot of players in Australia that could compete at that level. So, I mean, it's just about, you know, getting your foot in the door and uh, being given those opportunities to show, uh, showcase what you can do. You know, just after your, your first season in the WNBA, we had the Olympics in Sydney and you were part of that Opals team that brought home silver. Tell us a little bit about that. That must have been pretty big. Yeah, look, I set out the WNBA season in 2000 so I could focus on the Olympic team. So, you know, I think when I got that call that you're in the team, like prior to that, I'm like, oh, no, I'm definitely not in it. You know, you just have so many doubts. And I think as women, that's something that we we do. We, we really doubt our uh, our achievements and what we, yeah, what we can do. So anyway, when I got that call, I mean, it was just amazing because I grew up in Sydney. So, you know, having the games there and having, you know, family and friends who could actually uh, experience it with me. If it had gone to another country, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money, so they wouldn't have been able to travel with me. So it was nice that they could actually experience it. And I mean, the preparation was brutal, like, you know, I mean, training camps and, you know, all the testing and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, was pretty full on. And But to actually have it in the city that I grew up in and, um, you know, that was pretty amazing. I always talk about, and, and we did win a silver, and uh, being up on the dais and, you know, the medals being put around my neck and I look over into the into the stands and my son, who was four at the time, was jumping up and down on the seat and mum was crying as Islander women do and, you know, it was. and I look around and there were so many people that shared my journey um, that were there with me. You know, it was just nice to be able to have them there um, experiencing it with me. I get really emotional when I talk about it. You know, it was just such an amazing experience. That would have been such a special moment because it's one of those things that doesn't happen very often. So, you know, we've talked about the basketball, but I want to talk about now where you've moved into 
in your role with FIBA and in the Oceania region. And also, I'm sure that the listeners would love to understand how you're contributing to the growth of the game in the in the region. Mm, yeah, sure. So I started working with FIBA Oceania in um, 2013. Um, again, I was in the right place at the right time. When I moved back to Australia in 2008, I tried to get back into sport uh, and working in some capacity, but nothing was really around at that time. So I ended up just working for a financial advisor and being his personal assistant. So here I am at Alexandria on a Wednesday night, you know, waiting to play my social game of basketball. And the competitions manager for FIBA Oceania at the time uh, was Judy Smith. And uh, she was in town. She was there to watch her daughter play. So we ended up just having a chat. You know, she told me about the the things that the, – the work that she did in the Pacific. And, and I just – you know, I just blurted out, you know, do you have any jobs? And she was like, yeah, we have three. You know, she told me about this job here. And again, you know, when I saw the job description, I was like, oh, my God, no, I, I won't be able to do it. But um, after talking with some friends and showing them what it was, they were like, you know, this is your job, so you should definitely do it. So, you know, looking back now as development manager for FIBA Oceania, you know, I work at all levels, you know, from, you know, with players, with coaches, with referees in sport development. Uh, but we also do a lot of sport for development. And the difference is, is that, you know, with funding uh, from the Australian government, we're able to go into the Pacific and run basketball activities and, and you know, with, with using a, as a social change. So, for example, in Fiji, non-communicable diseases, um, it's an epidemic in the Pacific. So through our Mums a Hero program, we've targeted the mums to, you know, teach them about healthy lifestyle, being active, which then they can share with their with their families. So we go and we run a basketball clinic. We have experts from like health organisations coming to talk to them about healthy eating and being active. But, you know, we're using that basketball to help, you know, that social change. So we've got a number of programs in the Pacific that we, um, you know, that are sport for development. So, yeah, I mean, it's an exciting job. Uh, I'm an islander myself. You know, I was born in Papua New Guinea. So to be able to use basketball, you know, which has been such a big part of my life and has been good to me to then try and help Oceania federations, you know, to develop their basketball, but to also not just you know, make good basketball players, but make good people as well. Typically, Oceania region is known for really having a significant focus on games like rugby league and rugby union. And basketball is not a game that's normally associated mm. with, with the Oceania region. How do you find challenging that belief? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I think that, I mean, you know, in, Oce in Australia, we have the same challenge. You know, there's so many other sports that you're competing with. It's very much sharing information about the good work that our federations are doing, you know, on social media. And, you know, there's lots of opportunities to try and get in contact with, you know, the high commissions in those countries and trying to work that social component into it as well so that we are trying to make a difference. But it is very much working with the federations to promote what is difference the sport is making in their communities this is actually a really tough one because you look at rugby and AFL and you know when you look at each of those countries and players can make 
a living from these sports, you know, a good living for their to support their families. So, you know, we're we're, we're trying to also provide opportunities for our federation. So players going to college in the states and you know getting an education or being a part of you know the NBL or the WNBL. You know, are there opportunities for them to play there so that they can also make money to support their families? Because you know, to be honest, they don't have a lot in some of these islands. So if they can use sport to to help them, then uh, that's what we are trying to, to work with them to achieve. What surprises me is a lot of companies that could potentially be sponsors, I'm not sure whether they're just not aware of the opportunities that sponsorship could provide them and for people that live across the Oceania region or not. To me, from the outside, I don't seem to see that, that enough organisations are getting involved in trying to help to grow basketball and to also help communities grow. That's a, It's an interesting question. It's a, it's a difficult one to answer because, I mean, I think right now we've got such a global epidemic, no one wants to give any money. I think the biggest thing is when you, you're asking people for money, it's they want to know what are they going to get in return. So it, it's, a, it's a really, it's a tough one. Um, okay. you, you got to have a good product. You really have to create a product that they can see there's value in providing, you know, funding for it. Yep. And, and that's one thing I think with the Australian government, we have been able to show that we are trying to create a better environment with, you know, that's this, the whole social component of the programs that we that we run in PNG, uh, social inclusion. You know, we've got partnerships with the Australian Federal Police, the local police. I'm from PNG, and it's very much about it's a tribal culture, and you don't really get on with other tribes. So, you know, using basketball as that tool for that social change, we're bringing the tribes together. We're bringing communities together that wouldn't necessarily work together uh, into an environment where it's the same, you know, you've got the same things. It's it's about sports, about coming together. It's about enjoying. It's about fun. It's about a safe space. So those are the programs that we work with in the Pacific. But when you when you talk about sporting organisations and where you have to pay salaries and, and things like that, you know, businesses want to see a good product that is going to promote what they're, they're doing as well. That's an interesting point you just brought up. I know from a friend of mine who used to fly in PNG, he mentioned to me the tribalism could get quite fracturous what you were mentioning that sounds like a really positive step in helping to break down those barriers yeah no definitely i mean each kind of region has their own social challenges i mean being from png myself just noticed how volatile it can get but when you put everybody into the arena and you know they're all like you know, we've got this program called um twilight and it's twilight program and it's a, a spin-off from midnight basketball in the states where you know kids would just come off the streets at night and you know they weren't out doing stupid things and you know getting into trouble they're on the court playing basketball so the twilight program is very much like that but it's it's for you know we've got young kids under 10s you know all the way up to you know under 20s so it's just bringing those communities together and just trying to give them something that they can enjoy together without having that hostility towards each other and like 
there's so many different classes in PNG where, you know, we've seen that kids that have a lot are then sharing, you know, sharing their shoes with kids that don't have any. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just nice to actually see that within the programs that uh, we're delivering and, you know, using basketball as that tool, using sport as that tool to make that change in the country. Are there other issues that you find across some of the other federations across Oceania that are a challenge for the engagement with basketball? I think, look, I think the biggest challenge you'll have in the Pacific, and they probably say it here in Australia as well, is that, you know, there's lack of facilities. So PNG were very lucky. They hosted the Pacific Games in 2015, which is like the Olympics in Oceania. They built a massive international stadium in Port Moresby. Fiji have an indoor a couple of indoor facilities. But if you go to any of the other islands, you know, they probably just have outdoor courts. So, you know, lack of facilities has been a challenge and would probably stop any kind of basketball activity happening because if there's one court, then you've, you know, the Oceania Pacific is very religious. So, you know, they may have church service in there on Sunday or really any time of the week because, you know, church happens every day. You know, they may have weddings in there. So, you know, if you only got one facility, then everyone's using it, then you you have that challenge of having actual basketball. That's probably one of the biggest one. And then the other thing is, you know, everyone's always got lack of funding. You know, how can we run tournaments if we don't have any money or how can we travel to So if we want to be included in international events, how can we get there if we don't have money? I mean, these are the things that we work with our federations on. We work with them on their governance trainings. We work with them on funding proposals so that they can get some money to run competitions, to participate in Oceania competitions. So, yeah, so there's lots of things. I mean, you know, on top of the development part, we're also working with the federations on on how they would, their good governance as well. A lot of people might think it's just purely basketball. FIBA Oceania has a much wider role to play across the region with health, social and sporting considerations. Would that be a fair comment? Yes, yes, most definitely. I mean, you know, yes, we do have the competitions. We have, you know, qualifiers, Olympic qualifiers. We've got, you know, Oceania championships to qualify for world events. Yeah, there's there's lots of those things that we do uh, in our region. Um, but then, yes, we have the sport development, but then we have the sport for development programs as well. And, and, you know, one of the, you asked about other kind of challenges in other countries, you know, Papua New Guinea have domestic violence, Timor-Leste have domestic violence, you know, there's malnutrition, there's so many social issues in the, in these countries. And, you know, if we can go in there and not only are we teaching and getting experts to teach about how there can be change, you know, we're also providing, you know, that basketball opportunity as well to try and get that messaging um, into them. I'm just wondering, if you had your opportunity, how would you try to educate people to this wider role that FIBA and FIBO Shania plays? Oh, I think it's, you know, things like this, you know, the podcast, through social media. In our office, we have three full-time staff and one part-time staff. And, you know, we cover 22 federations. We're probably the smallest region as far as 
people that work in the office, but we're the biggest region as far as how much area we cover. You know, we've got that big challenge of how much, you know, the ocean between all our islands. You know, we've got 22 federations, member federations that we work with, Australia, New Zealand and 20 other Pacific countries. So I think, you know, through word of mouth, through social media, through these, you know, podcasts, just sharing what we do, we do some amazing work. Yeah, it is not just about the game uh, of basketball. It's also about making better humans. And that's one thing that uh, I think we're pretty proud of. We're probably one of the only regions in uh, FIBA that have had sport for development programs and have been running them for a number of years. So we're very proud of that we've been able to achieve it. A bit earlier on, you mentioned about opportunities for college. Have there been a lot of players to take advantage of those opportunities? Um, um, look, I think in Australia, yes. New Zealand, more now. In the other 20 countries, it's something that is growing. I know in Fiji, we've had a couple of players that have gone over to college. We've got a coach now. She's actually the starting point guard for the Fiji national team. She is an assistant coach at Fordham University in uh, New York. There's some players from Guam that have gone to college in Hawaii. So there are more opportunities. But it's also about who in the US or in Australia we can work with to have these doors open for athletes. I think you've seen now that there are so many players from Australia, young players going to college because there are avenues to get there. So that's what we're still trying to work with with our Oceania, um, our other 20 federations. France has got a lot of involvement across the Oceania region, Tahiti, mm-hmm. New Caledonia. Yeah. Has France been able to provide any opportunities for players from the region? Yes, France do. The France Basketball Federation are very much involved with both of those countries and that they do provide opportunities for kids to go to to school in France. We have also uh, been in contact with both New Cal and Tahiti about having kids come to Australia as well. So that's something uh, before COVID happened, that was something that was we'd opened up discussions with them because it's closer to home. You know, they don't have to go that far. So, yeah, I mean, Definitely, France are definitely involved with both, both in coaching, refereeing. They provide support in those areas. We also provide support to Tahiti. So we have a development officer who's a local uh, that we work with, um, and it's a partnership between the federation, the government in Tahiti, and FIBA. And we fund, we partially fund this person, and then we, you know, we work th- with them to develop basketball as well in the country. So to answer your question, most definitely, France are very much involved. It seems to me that you've. Actually- actually got the opportunity to get contacts across a whole number of regions just purely because of historically countries that have been involved throughout Oceania, so United States, Great Britain, France. Has this been able to assist to be able to help develop basketball across the Pacific? Mm. So I guess I'll start with the Micronesia, which is the North Pacific, which has got very much a lot of U.S. influence. Yep. Guam, you know, a lot of their players, they hold U.S. passports, so they do go to college in the States. So there's been a lot of influence in their level of competition. It is still a small country. Although it is a U.S. territory, it's still classed as an Oceania 
Federation. So, you know, they can participate in all our Oceania events. They would not participate in FIBA Americas events. They are at this stage in their men's competition, the third best team in Oceania and are currently part of Asia Cup qualification process. They still have that challenge of support from the US for basketball. So we still need to continue to work with them to try and lift the development in the country because it's a really small island. As far as the other islands in Micronesia, they do have basketball happening, but on a much lower scale. And then it's all about, you know, having the right person in the in the countries to work with. They're all volunteers primarily. So sport and basketball is not their number one priority. So sometimes it's a bit of a challenge. We all work at a certain pace and we like things to be done quickly. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, in the islands. So (laughs) that's a bit of a challenge and and something I grew up in Australia, so I'm very much the, you know, the time we need to have it done by this time and you've got your deadlines. And so when you go to the islands, you kind of need to think about, okay, well, where did that person come from? How did they have to get to the meeting? Did they have to walk? You know, how far away do they live? You know, because they may not have a car, you know, so that part has been uh, kind of challenging. It's interesting to hear because I suppose we're also used to seeing basketball in big stadiums. Um, we're constantly bombarded with the NBA, you know, Euro, NBL, WNBL. Mm. I think we kind of tend to forget that in countries like Micronesia, for example, facilities might be very, very scarce. And as you said, sometimes people don't have transportation. They have to walk to Mm. wherever the event is. So it's interesting to hear that. How do you see basketball developing across the region, given the way you've seen it develop over the last few years? Having the right people to work with is really important. I know with our federations, most of them are volunteers. So just trying to get them all on the same page and, you know, with the same objectives is something that we're working with. The other thing is, is, you know, lifting the level of competitions within our Oceania championships. So we've uh, reduced the number of teams. There are sub-zone competitions to then, you know, so we've got the better teams playing in the competition. So then we're lifting up the level of the competitions. The players are getting better. We're then working with coaches and with referees to try and improve them as well. So from when I started in 2013, it's definitely has improved. I've seen so many players and teams and competitions that, you know, at the start was like, oh, you know, don't know about that. But yeah, it, it's definitely has improved over the, uh, the seven years that I've been here. In Australia, you know, I think we've got some good people in place to try and get us to that next level. Uh, We've got some great players, you know, we've got that excitement, we've got some very good coaches. We've tried to improve also with referees uh, and coaches in Australia. So, you know, hopefully we we can get some backing from some institutions that can, can help us really build the game to where I believe it can be. You know, it is an amazing game. Back in the 90s, you know, it was probably one of the, the top sports at the time and you know I, I feel like we've got some good systems and people in place to help us get it back to where it used to be. Oh, I think so and I think things are starting to improve for basketball despite the challenges of other sports who are starting to make inroads. I know I said that was going to be the last question but I do have, <laughs> one, I do have one more for you. What's the one thing that fans don't know about you that you would like them to know? Oh, God. They don't know about me. Well, you know what? And no, actually, people kind of get shocked. I love fishing. 
<laughs> so I'm not very good at it, but, you know, I live on the Gold Coast. I li- I'm just looking out of the boardroom at work and it's the most beautiful place to live. And on the weekends, I get my rod, I put my dog in the car, we pack a little something to eat and we go find a spot and that's what that's my happy place now I'm not able to play basketball anymore because my knees are no good so that's the next best thing to to playing ball is going out and throwing my line out I don't have to catch a fish Um, I just love to get out there and enjoy what the Gold Coast has to offer any secret fishing spots we should know about no, 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 no. Like I said, I'm not very good. It's nice to be a part of nature. Uh, this is this is really crazy though. But I catch a fish and then like I hate to kill the fish, so it's usually like throw it back in the back in the ocean, and that's my uh, what what I love to do right now. And and what sort of dog have you got? A little toy poodle. His name is Mellow, and he's my little sidekick. He's <laughs> now four and a half. Okay. And he comes comes with me everywhere. He's the most beautiful little thing ever. And, yeah, I couldn't imagine life without him. Annie, thank you so much for your time. I would love to get an opportunity to check in with you at some point in time in the future to find out more about what's happening in Oceania and the region. It sounds really interesting. And, yes, there are obviously a lot of challenges, but it sounds to me like there's a lot of improvements happening Mm, most definitely. Look, we've got the Women's World Cup coming here in 2022, and I know there's a lot of there's going to be some legacy programs, and there's you know and there's some programs that we're doing that I haven't mentioned that I'd love to talk to you about. So I look forward to sharing the programs and and other things that we're doing within our office. Annie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Paul.